Hello and welcome to another episode of At The Margin. This is the third episode in our special series in association with the Irish Society for Women in Economics. Today, I'm joined by Kate Laffin to discuss the environment and well-being. Kate is an assistant professor in behavioural science at the London School of Economics. Prior to that, she was a Marie Curie Fellow at UCD. Kate has done much work on the environment and how it impacts our welfare and general well-being. This is a very interesting conversation that took place some time ago as we were emerging from lockdown, so hopefully none of the lockdown fatigue comes true. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thanks very much, Kate, for, for joining here to discuss about topics of well-being. It would be useful, I suppose, to kick off to think about well, what exactly uh, is it when we're talking about well-being and why is this something that maybe is interesting in an economics context? Yeah, so... I think well-being and welfare is pretty fundamental to economics. You know, there's a whole branch of economics um, called welfare economics. But also, if you think of what's the goal of public policy, ultimately, is to, you know, promote and safeguard the well-being of current generations, but also those of future generations, then we need to understand what actually determines well-being and we need to know how to go about promoting it. So I think that's pretty clear and fundamental. But then, of course, what, you get into the question of what is well-being? And there's lots of different answers to that question and, and not exactly a, a high level of agreement when it comes to that. So traditionally within economics, people have tended towards a preference satisfaction account of well-being. And that essentially boils down to the idea that you get when you get more of what you prefer, you're doing better. And some accounts that are further developed say, you know, cleansed preferences, what you'd prefer if you had perfect information or we're lacking in self-control failures. But ultimately what matters is your ability to satisfy your preferences. And that points you in the direction of economic factors, because obviously the, the higher your budget, the more of your preferences you can satisfy. And so that's kind of steered economics in the direction of thinking about the importance of economic factors in determining how well you are, according to a preference satisfaction account. Now, there's lots to be said for that account. I'm not going to um, take issue with it other than to say that there's other ways of approaching the question of what well-being is. So traditionally in psychology, there's been more of a focus on a mental state account of well-being, which basically says you're well when you feel well, both overall in your life and sort of day to day. Um, and increasingly within economics as well, more and more people are looking to that account to say, OK, how do, actually, how do people actually feel as they go about their lives? And how can we use information about how they feel as they go about their lives to understand what a good life is, how we can promote good lives. Okay, that's so really, it seems to be a more broader, all-encompassing context or way of understanding people's well-being, people's welfare, as opposed to maybe what we normally think about in economics, which are really just crude indicators, I suppose, things like income, GDP, these sort of metrics, which capture one aspect of how well we're doing, but it doesn't really encompass all the different factors that make up how, how, how well we're feeling and getting on exactly and and i think um one of the reasons why economics has tended to focus on those measures not the only reason they are important in and of themselves is also because we can objectively measure them so when you come to a mental state account of well-being you have to ask the question well how can we inquire into people's mental states and you know some of my own work but others as well have looked at biomarkers of trying to understand you know how do physiological responses relate to mood states but ultimately the best sort of evidence that we have so far is using measures of subjective well-being and economics tends to shy away from the subjective, but these indicators of their people's reports of how they think about their lives and how they feel as they go about them. So things like how satisfied are you with your life overall? 
mm. or how anxious did you feel yesterday? Um, those indicators, we have good, a good body of evidence now that we actually are extracting valuable data from people when we ask those kinds of questions and that they can shed light on important questions as to what determines those outcomes. So that's what has tended to be the focus now in, in subjective well-being economics, using those kinds of indicators to look at how the circumstances of people's lives and other factors impact on how they feel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because really at the end of the day, it matters. It's what you think is what matters in terms of how well you're getting on as opposed to you could have all the money in the world in, the, in your account, but if you're not, if you're, if other aspects are, are, are getting you down, well, then that's, uh, that's no good to you. But um, on this aspect of subjective well-being, that's something you've looked a lot into. Um, maybe you could tell us something about some of the research you've done on maybe what determines factors related to subjective well-being and uh, what are the various determinants that predict your well-being? Absolutely. So, so as you say, you could be doing very well in terms of income, but there could be loads of other things going on in your life that would mean that you might be suffering on other dimensions. So certainly economic factors matter, you know, living in poverty, being under financial stress. Those are things that are really going to play into your life satisfaction, but also your daily negative emotions. Um, unemployment is one of the key findings from the sort of circumstance literature. So unemployment takes a real toll on people's um, subjective well-being, job insecurity as well. So being worried about being unemployed as well as being unemployed. Um, but beyond that, then there's a whole host of things that are non-economic indicators that matter as well. Some of those are subjective, subjective things like trust in institutions, trust in government, your perceptions of safety in your environment, for example. But then there's also been a big push recently, not recently, but at the past decade to look at how people's time use impacts on their well-being. So really focusing in on the day-to-day -day lived experiences of people and saying, you know, how are people spending their time and how does that impact upon how they feel and, and how they think about their lives? So social interaction is one of those things that really matters for people. Loneliness is a real risk factor when it comes to subjective well-being. Um, spending time in nature is one of those consistent, really well-evidenced findings that that's very good for us. Um, and not only very good for us in general, but very good for us when we have other stressors. So when it can act as a kind of a buffer to stressful life events like relationship breakdown, like financial insecurity. Um, the other one that I, it's really close to my research interests and I think is a really important area to emphasize is in relation to pro-social behavior. So traditionally you think of pro-social behavior, if you look at it through a very um, traditional economic lens, you think of you giving up resources, time or money for the benefit of others. But the subjective well-being research indicates that actually giving to charity, volunteering of your time um, benefits you in addition to helping others. And so it's really actually this win-win that exists that if we were to spend more time doing things that benefited others, we'd actually benefit ourselves as well. Um, so yeah, time use is one of those key things that subjective well-being data helps us to hone in on and, and think about how could we make the circumstances of people's lives better, but also their day-to-day -day experiences better with a view to making their overall well-being, okay, uh, promoting their overall well-being. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, like, it makes a lot of sense when you hear about it, like you said, it resonates with a lot of people. But uh, is, there any, is there any ranking in terms of if somebody wants to improve their well-being? Is there any low-hanging fruit there that, that you could say, well, maybe spend more time in nature or social activities or these sort of things that, that would, would help you out? 
So the ones that I mentioned there, so there's the kind of the key five that they kind of talk about for from an individual perspective mm. is spending time in nature, giving in whatever way you can, charitable donation, volunteering of your time, um, connecting. So really spending time, spending time with people that you like, of course, <laughs> um, but ensuring that you're not socially isolated is very important. Spending time in um, uh, curious fashion, so learning in some way or engaging with material that you find interesting is also very good for your well-being. And the last one is really more of a, a, an approach. It's not exactly how you spend your time as opposed to what you spend your time doing. It's, it's being present. So that comes from, you know, the more mindfulness tradition of attention being a key factor that determines how you feel, what you're paying attention to matters. And so being present in your activities um, and especially those activities that mean something to you, you know, so spending time with your children, being present with them or engaging in a, I don't know, a learning activity, really being present to that and not being distracted by kind of irrelevant other factors is yeah. also really important. It really gets me thinking about like the way things have gone with phones and stuff that's so distracting. It's, it's, it's a it's a it's a not a very productive use of your time so you, I mean, imagine you don't feel too good after it and then it's you're not present in the moment i don't know is there any literature on that or any research on it yeah lots of lots of literature on that and and and, a, and an increasing body of work that's talked about you know intrusive thoughts as being very detrimental to well-being but also intrusive external factors that are kind of detracting you from where you are in the present moment and it's really interesting when you so if you think about subjective well-being you can often break it down into two different types of well-being. So there's the sort of pleasure side of well-being that is about happiness, joy, um, having fun. And then there's this more purposeful side of well-being, which the technical term is eudaimonia, but we think about you know, what, is, what feels worthwhile, what, what gives you meaning. Um, and certainly when it comes to those more distracting sort of activities around social media, maybe around Netflix binging, some of that might be giving you a pleasure boost, but there's really good evidence to suggest that that doesn't feel very meaningful for people. And the sort of standard diminishing marginal returns, the more that you do of it, the less it delivers any sort of benefits to you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have to be careful with our, where we allocate our attention if we're trying to maximize our well-being. Yeah, definitely. It's like a short-term boost, but in the long-term it's, yeah, you need to have something, but maybe a balance. I think it all comes back to getting a balance within these yeah. things. Um, that's it and it's not to say that pleasure or joy and fun and all those things don't feature in a good life you know it is that balance between pleasurable and purposeful activities but if you're getting a lot of one my uh former phd supervisor paul dolan has this pleasure pleasure purpose principle that he talks about and he, he talks about you know there are these different kinds of people some are more oriented towards pleasure some are more oriented towards purpose but for everyone striking a bit of a balance would stand to benefit them yeah but so you've so you've done research on so these are all the different factors i suppose that 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 come into your general well-being and you've done a lot of research into different aspects of this so maybe we can delve into different parts that, you, that you've explored and one has yeah. been in terms of the environment and well-being and you've done research on things like green infrastructure and urban spaces and um, maybe you could tell us a bit about those studies and what exactly what type of study you did in the first place and maybe some of the findings and what that might tell us maybe about how this affects our well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So the so the first thing to say is that's one of those other factors that I, I should have mentioned before, but certainly the subjective well-being literature gives us good evidence that our environmental quality really matters. So both in terms of the environmental goods that you're exposed to, things like the levels of green space in your area, your proximity to the coast, 
but also the environmental bads that you're exposed to. So noise pollution, air pollution, litter, for example, all of these things uh, predict both how you evaluate your life and how you feel day to day. And what's really nice about taking a subjective well-being approach to some of these questions, how much do these things matter, um, is that obviously, for the most part, these are non-market goods. So people can't pay readily other than having a garden. People can't pay to have access to more parks nearby, can't pay to be less exposed to air pollution. And so looking at markets, you know, you can try to elicit willingness to pay measures based on hypothetical questions if you go for a preference satisfaction account. Or you can look at related markets like house pricing, for example. But you're still limited in your ability to look at, you know, to what extent do these environmental goods and bads really matter in people's lives? So I think subjective well-being has something important to say there. And the evidence is really clear. It, it really matters. It matters um, in magnitudes that are really comparable to other important life factors like marital status. You know, these things feed in in a really important way. Mm. So... I've done quite a bit of work in that area on, on different topics, things like air pollution. So very clearly coming through as being something that that does negatively uh, at least correlate with people's life satisfaction, how worthwhile they consider their activities to be, how happy they feel on a day to day basis, how anxious they feel. And in some follow up work, you know, you ask the question, OK, there seems to be this correlation between these things. What's going on there? Um, and one of the answers uh, that I have based on, on some work I did as part of my PhD is that living in more polluted environments, people behave differently. So they're less likely to spend time in nature, which I've already banged on about how important that is. They're less likely to engage in exercise, which is also important for your well-being. And so not the, not the full picture, but part of the reason why polluted environments impacts upon people is because it changes how they spend their time. And, and, you know, the converse is true when you have a very good environmental quality, when you live in close proximity to the coast, to green space, evidence suggests that you're more likely to exercise, visit the outdoors. So so those are things that matter for our well-being and, and our environment shapes yeah, what we uh, do. It makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, for me to do things like exercise, it has to be easy because I'll make up an excuse whenever I can, like a very, a very simple excuse. So I'm... Um, if it's more easy, you're more likely to do it. Like it, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and then some of the, sorry. And then yeah. So the, the, some of the only other things you can do with subjective well-being data is you can say, okay, how do you optimize policies that are looking to develop um, environmental qualities, like green infrastructure projects, for example. And so some of the work that I've done in that space is looking at, um, alongside an urban planner in Chile, actually uh, Pablo Navarrete, we carried out some work that looked at photo simulations of different urban environments and ask people's subjective well-being responses to these kind of being presented with these different environments um, simulated either as including green infrastructure interventions or not, and being able to sort of calibrate by how much can you improve people's responses to these urban environments, at least in this sort of stylized way, and in which, which ways are the best ways of going about it. So it's, it's one use of that data that I think is quite promising to try and tailor policy making where you know maybe you already know you want to invest in green infrastructure but how to go about doing that okay subjective well -being and when help. you say green infrastructure is it like parks or would it be just like trees along the, the street or it, it's fr from the from the very small scale to the very big scale so we we didn't look at parks in the con there have been studies that have looked at parks or you know development of uh, brown sites in urban environments that have kind of been left um i like left kind of by themselves but 
in our project specifically, we were looking at what's the impact in really dense urban environments of adding things like street trees, adding things like plant beds. And we didn't just look at subjective well-being, although we did find really strong results in relation to people's responses. We also looked at things like perceptions of safety. Mm. So in urban environments, can we make people feel more safe um, by changing the environment such that it includes, yeah, really low-key green infrastructure that wouldn't cost the earth? could have real impacts on people's lived experiences in those spaces okay that's really interesting and also at this approach like you were saying before we can do things like quantitative measures of looking at how house prices change in certain areas where you have you know mm -hmm. more access to you know, coastal views or access to local parks and things like that but it does seem like that's capturing a subset of the total welfare benefit that you're getting because it's it's at the very best it's the explicit part it's not the implicit part of as you're saying the, you're more inclined to go for a walk it's just something that you might think when you're making a purchase decision or maybe something that you're aware of at, at the very least it's not really all these parts that, that you're not really aware of that are factored into your into your well-being absolutely so you might expect that you know and, and you would expect that people buying a house by the sea understand that that that, that feeds into the value and, and the house price. Mm. But certainly street trees, for example, it might change your overall impression of the area, but it's not going to be something that's factoring when you're when you're thinking about putting a bid down on a house. Yeah, it's yeah. not something, that's going to be, you know, very front of mind. So so there are these other ways of approaching the question. And, and I think it's a complementary approach at the very least that can help us understand. My, when I think about my own uh, perspective on these things. It has changed over time. So when I've more when I'm exposed to certain things, I have certain different put place a different value on it. So I wonder, is, does that come into it at all in, into literature? Maybe some people from a certain background might say well, I place a bit of value on this, or people who have different life experiences. Perhaps. Absolutely, and, that, and that's what uh, I think the big push now in well-being research, or at least one of the big pushes, is to try to do more heterogeneity analysis to try to say, you know. In two things, like how much does a factor matter across the well-being distribution? So is something important, equally important for people who are, you know, very miserable versus those people who are doing pretty well already? And, you know, if you have a sort of a social, uh, if you have a sort of a social welfare function that weights those people at the bottom of the distribution, we should really th be thinking about what can help support and protect those yeah. people's well-being. That might be different. Um, the other thing that came up while I was while you were talking is is this subjective well-being research has also taught us that people make what are called affective forecasting errors. So we don't we're not always good at predicting what's going to bring us well-being. Yeah. So coming back to the house purchasing decision, for example, you might really value a giant fridge, for example. That might be something that in your mind was part of what you wanted in your your new house. But in your day to day experience, you'll probably adapt to that very quickly. And it's not something that's going to be um, very important to you compared to something like being in a really noisy environment, which you a might not notice when you're buying the house. But um, B, you might kind of disregard as not being super important. Yeah. In actual fact, the research shows time and time again, that's something that we don't adapt to. It'll continue to bother us. It'll continue to feed negatively into our well-being. So it, it can help us kind of pick apart where we make these mistakes and where we don't always know what's going to be good for us. Yeah, wow, that's actually really interesting. I remember hearing somebody say before that there was research on if you get used, if you're living in a bigger house, you feel the benefit after the first however long period is. But 
after a while, it's the same as if you're living in a small house. You just you you you're you know you calibrate towards this the, whatever size it is. So uh, yeah, I never thought of that. And like yeah, that's really interesting about noise because I'm here. I'm, I'm living right beside the main road, and as somebody who grew up in the country, it's uh, it's taken a while to get used to. Definitely. Well, you were probably in general, people are uh, tend to be tend to be on average happier in the country than they are in urban areas. So there might be okay. something with noise all right but in general um adaptation is one of the most important findings in subjective well-being research what we do and don't adapt to and material goods are certainly something that we get very used to very quickly yeah. um things like changes in income ch upward changes in income like a raise for example you think god i'm going to be i'm going to feel great if i get that raise well actually you get it you work towards it you get it very quickly that becomes something that is kind of in the rear view mirror and your reference point changes and you no longer benefit as much as you thought you might or as much as you originally did from gaining an income in that way so yeah adaptation is, is one of the really fascinating areas in subjective well-being research uh, yeah and and equally important is to kind of it tells us what we don't adapt to so noise is one of them uh, unemployment is one of them again long-term unemployment is something that people don't adapt to chronic pain so really chronic uh, physical impairment as well as mental health problems so another important finding from the subjective well-being research is just how detrimental mental health problems are to well-being, which almost seems <laughs> tautological, but no, it really is important. And it's not something that people get used to. Um, so it's something that we really need to prioritize as a policy area. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Um, so maybe I know you've you've done work on bad air quality. Maybe we'll just talk about that for a minute, and then we can go on to your, your current research. Um so this was to do with a particular matter in an area and how it affected well-being. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that? Because that's uh, something quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So this was based on, uh, it was two papers in, in a UK sample in both cases. Sorry, the, the first was a UK sample, the second was an English sample, and they were both part of my, my PhD. So the, the first paper really just said, you know, there's been this existing work that has looked at how air pollution, particular matter specifically, relates to life satisfaction. Um, and life satisfaction is a really important measure of subjective well-being, but it's a very evaluative measure. So it asks you to stand back and overall think about your life. Um, and interestingly, it still is related. So living in a more polluted environment, people report lower levels of life satisfaction. But it kind of doesn't take you to that, that place that I'm trying to go with the research about people's lived experiences. And so what I do is, in addition to looking at life satisfaction, I look at how happy people felt on the previous day, how anxious people felt on the previous day, and how worthwhile they consider their activities to be overall, getting at that more sort of purpose measure of well-being. And I find that, yeah, indeed, life, uh, air pollution is related to all of those positive measures of well-being. So you're less satisfied, you're less happy, <laughs> you are, you consider your activities to be less worthwhile. And an interesting question then is what's really going on behind that? Why, why would that be the case? And of course, there's, there's loads of different pathways between air pollution and potentially between well-being. The obvious ones are health. Mm -hmm. And so typically policy will focus on health. It will look at living in a more polluted environment. How does that impact upon people's short-term, long-term health? But it's really not the full story. So even if you include health in those self-reported health or objective indicators of health, in those equations, you'll still see that there's a significant negative association between air pollution and subjective well-being. So my next step was then to ask, okay, what else could be going on? And in the second paper in my thesis, what I found was that actually living in more polluted environments, people spend time differently. 
So they're less likely to engage in physical activity. They're less likely to spend time outdoors. And we know that those are things that are very good for our well-being. So the quality, the quality of their environments really shapes how they spend their time that has knock-on impacts on their well-being. And so it really hammers home why we need to care about air pollution, but also understanding behavioral pathways through which we could address the issue of low well-being. Okay. So is that if you're in a city, for example, and there's a lot of cars driving around, that means there's a lot of air pollution. And the fact that you're in this environment means that it's more difficult to get to places to go for exercise and all these sort of things. Is that... Yeah, so I, I would I would I would think that it's important to think of environmental quality indicators kind of holistically. So you know, obviously, air pollution will be correlated with things like traffic, which will be correlated with things like green space. And so, I, in an ideal world, you'd want to get to a picture of the overall environmental quality of an area, and tease apart what is it about living in those areas that makes people engage in those activities. But certainly, from the correlational research. We can say that people who live in more polluted environments engage in engage with nature less. They probably have less opportunity to do so, almost certainly. Um, but they, because they do less, it's likely that they are having negative impacts on their subjective well-being. Because we have good causal evidence of the impact of spending time in nature on on well-being. Well, maybe then we'll talk about what, what your current uh, project then, because it's sort of related here in terms of environment and. Uh... The intention behavior gap in environmental policy, maybe you could explain what, what exactly that is to the lay person like myself. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, was very generously funded by the European Commission to come home to UCD to work on a Marie Curie fellowship, which gave me two years to focus on a, on a, on a topic of interest. Um, and what I'm honing in on is, as you say, intention behavior gaps in environmentally significant consumption behaviors. So loads of jargon in there. But essentially what it means is for people who have intentions to act in ways that would benefit the environment, but are for some reason failing to follow through. Um, and maybe not always failing, but in, in certain circumstances or in certain domains, aren't managing to have um, behave in the ways that they intend. And what's particularly interesting about this group, I think, is when people display intention behavior gaps in, in the environmental domain, they end up having a greater negative impact on the environment than they actually intend to, and in some cases want to. So if we can help them follow through, there's an opportunity there to potentially advance their well-being, as well as having these positive impacts on the environment. We're helping them kind of act aligned with their preferences and in ways that will make them feel good about themselves or at least avoid the negative feelings that can arise when you don't do what you really want to do okay yeah um, so it comes back to that whole thing of when you mentioned about charity that you get this benefit from giving this is a similar type of type yeah. pathway i suppose yeah somewhat so the one thing i'm not um limiting myself to in the context of the fellowship is only looking at actions that people are engaging in out of uh, environmental motivations so one of the areas that i look at is diet for example people could be doing people could have intentions to reduce their red meat consumption to help their health and i'm still interested if there's a gap there because if we can close that gap it'll have benefits for the environment and for the individual um, so so yeah i'm not only looking at those people with environmental motivations but i am looking at people who have intentions around behaviors that if we could get them to follow through it would help them and it would help the environment so that's what I've that's what I've spent the last um, two years on now at this stage, 
And it's been a really interesting, um, really interesting piece of work. I came to UCD because there was existing uh, researchers here already working on a specific method that we use called the day reconstruction method. Um, and that's a method that's typically used in well-being research, but colleagues, uh, Leonard Lades at the Geary Institute and um, Liam Delaney, who is formerly of UCD, but also uh, continues his association there. Um, they've used that method, which is basically a diary based method. So it asks people to revive their day yesterday and then ask some very specific questions about, you know, what were you doing? Who were you with? How did you feel? Um, that's been used to look at well-being, but they've adapted it to be able to look at self-control failures in daily life. So where, where are you? What are the moments when you get yourself into trouble? Um, and building on that work, um, we're carrying out some work to look at specifically intention behavior gaps. So for those people who have these good intentions to reduce their meat consumption or travel in more active ways, for example, when do they manage to follow through and, and when do they fall down and, and in the company of who, in what kind of mood state, those kinds of questions. Okay. And so what have any examples then of any particular behaviors that you've studied and what, what's driven the, the gap, I wonder? Yeah. So, so the one particular one that we've got some really nice data off uh, just recently is in and around meat consumption. So um, this was now in a, in a UK sample, but we found 22% of the population, which is not negligible, you know, 22% of people expecting to reduce their meat consumption in the next four weeks. Now, if they all did it, that'd be, that'd have some serious impacts on, you know, animal welfare, their own health and the environment. And we're asking the question, well, well, did you manage it? And when did you and when didn't you? Um, and, and using that day reconstruction method to really map where they fall down and, and when they manage to follow through. And the really strong, there's, a, there's lots of interesting stuff in there, but the really strong finding is that for this group of people that have these intentions, the social really gets in the way. So when you're eating with friends and family, when you're eating over in other people's houses, there's maybe already that pre-existing social pressure um, to kind of not be the awkward one who isn't going to eat whatever is being served. But also it could well be that it's just other people are eating meat and that enhances the temptation that exists in that moment. And people really, that's the key, I, for me, that's the key takeaway from it. The social really gets, it's, you know, really getting in people's way. Um, well, it's important to know that. It's important to know that for the individuals themselves, but it's also important to know that from a behavioral science perspective. So my kind of, I've got well-being, but my other hat is really a behavioral science. Um, how do we understand behaviors that have important policy impacts, but also design interventions that can help help people um, reduce their impacts on the environment, for example, or promote their well-being. And knowing that that social context is what's really driving these intention behavior gaps helps us to think about, okay, how would we design interventions to help people overcome those gaps yeah. kind of identify the pain points and the next step is really to hone in and think okay how do we support people in those moments so the other thing that i've been doing over the past couple of years is i've been working as a behavioral science fellow at the oecd okay. and i've um, been thinking about travel particularly in their context so the oecd is an international organization and, and a big part of their footprint in part because they're so good on other metrics, you know, they really have very efficient buildings. They're very conscious in, in their consumption of materials within the buildings, but it's left them with a high proportion of their leftover carbon footprint is their travel. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking through the ways that people's travel has been disrupted by the pandemic. 
their potential intentions around, you know, are we going back to normal or how could we not go back to normal and think about flying in particular less. Um, so certainly we've we've got a lot of the employee population suggesting that they have intentions to reduce their travel from pre-pandemic levels. And so the next step is really to think about, well, to what extent is it bouncing back and how could we kind of steer it in another direction? Okay, so people might have good intentions, but then when the opportunity arises, they're they're back to the old habits, I suppose. Not, so not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> if we can, if we can have some, if we can help them, not. And and one of the things that you know, there's so much negative that's come out of the pandemic, but one of the things that it has provided is a disruption to existing habits. Mm. So part of the reason why it's really hard for people to act sustainably is that lots of our daily habits are geared in an unsustainable way. We've, you know, it's just practice and, and habits are very hard to disrupt because they are so unconscious and you just go about our daily lives and and it's hard to think about every decision we make and the environmental yeah. consequences of every decision we make. So they're quite sticky. But the pandemic, <laughs> um, if I have one silver lining to say for it, is it's really disrupted how we have li- are living our lives. Um, and it does provide this moment of change that maybe gives us this opportunity. How can we do things differently? And how can we leverage that disruption to try to put in place supports or um, infrastructure that helps us really not go back to normal um, yeah. in the ways that are environmentally damaging or aren't servicing our well-being? Yeah, no, I definitely. That's something I've thought about as well, and especially in, in the context of say, transport and putting transport in, infrastructure in place. Now's the time yeah. to do it, really. But uh, related to that, though, you haven't you've worked on, but you've looked at well-being and COVID and how it might have changed during COVID. Um, was there any interesting findings there? Yeah, so there's been low, obviously, loads of work on the well-being impacts of COVID, and you know, our contribution I think was a really interesting one, but but didn't look across the duration of the pandemic. What we did back in. March 2020 now, God, it feels, it feels like a long time ago, we did kind of a snapshot of daily life in the in the sort of in the early days of the pandemic. It was a time when there was sort of a lot of panic um, a lot of, you know, new regulations that people had never come across before. And we were trying to inquire into how, you know, how were people feeling? And this was an Irish sample that we looked at. Um, and again, using the day reconstruction method that I mentioned before, asking people, you know, where were they? How were they spending their time? How did they feel? And, you know, some really unsurprising stuff, like they were spending most of it home and only within their tiny family unit. But important findings out of that, I think, were things like um, spending time exposing yourself to a lot of media around COVID Mm. was actually very negative. Um, Might come as no surprise to the parents out there, homeschooling also came out as really negative maybe less so now, but very much so at the time in the sort of initial days of having to figure out how to be a teacher in your own home. That was really stressful for people, um, really, really difficult. And then on the positive side, um, connecting with others, you know, staying in touch with others, spending time outdoors was really important. Um, So those were the sort of daily activities that would sort of safeguard, you could argue, people's well-being at this very stressful time. But um, that was a snapshot, as I say, and it doesn't tell you about the whole sort of breadth of the pandemic. And, and, and that is something that I'd love to do more work on, but but haven't. There's certainly been other good studies that have looked at it. So we've seen that well-being has been kind of following the nature of the pandemic. So it's going up and down. 
as you'd expect it to, as the, the state of the state of the country, the state of the pandemic worsens and gets better um, as restrictions ease up and not. But it's really important to say it, that for most people, their well-being has been quite resilient. But for, for lots of people, it hasn't been. And there are a really there's a Damien Barr quote who says, you know, we're all in the same storm, but some of us are in different boats. Mm-hmm. There's there's subgroups of people that have really suffered during the pandemic um, and are really warrant further attention. So mm-hmm. it's been harder on women than men. Um, in UK evidence, at least, it looked like it was harder on older people to begin with, and maybe that was the worry and shock around it. But over the course of the pandemic, it's become much harder on young people. Yeah. Um, and certainly there's not subjective well-being data, but there's um, conversations in Ireland about, you know, calls to child line, for example, um, and kids presenting with mental health problems that suggest that actually is really, really damaging at this point to many young people. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, subgroups that are really important to pull apart. I, there is a positive there that there has been lots of resilience in terms of well-being, um, but but it's certainly not the case that there aren't people really suffering from the pandemic that are really warranting policy attention yeah. and support. It always strikes me that if somebody, if there's something else going on that might have negatively affect your well-being and then you're hit with the pandemic, then it's like one thing multiplied by another it explodes the impact, but that's... As a layperson, that's, exactly. that's what it feels like. No, that's exactly right. And 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 the evidence totally supports that. So it, it is really those compounding kind of yeah. difficulty. This is a bad situation on top of what might have already been a bad situation. And that is really hard for people. Yeah. Um, so that does come through in, in the evidence. But but um it would be interesting if you to go back to those households that that you surveyed, I don't know if that's possible, but to see how, how it compares and holding all the other factors constant, I wonder. We didn't, we didn't, we don't have a, we don't have, we have repeated cross sections. So we have some further data that we've yet to, to write up. We don't have a following of the same group of people, mm-hmm. but, but it would be interesting to see. I think the thing with the pandemic is that it's evolving so quickly that you almost need, <laughs> you don't need to go back to them once you need to continually go back to the same people. And of course there are data sets that do that, that will show an evolution. Um, but well-being is shifting alongside the 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 nature of the pandemic um in the ways that you'd expect or even long term because one thing i've noticed is that i appreciate a lot of things more now so i wonder how that like in the long-term effect anyway we're kind of loads of different research questions for you here but uh, (laughs) no i'll make a list (laughs) i love it uh no i think you're yeah whether it changes like it certainly might you might expect it to change what we value which might have impact on our on our well-being going forward you know if we if we switch away from the sort of more material focus or the more status focus if there's even like more practical things like if there's a big shift from work towards working from home what does that do to our well-being at work which is a big important component of how we feel Mm. and then okay so maybe move on to some of the other um aspects that you've looked at so you've looked at we've touched on this already but charity and giving to well-being um but perhaps you could explain the sort of the the research project you did on that and just how you actually explored that uh, or explore, explored that as- aspect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, charity be not necessarily being a sacrifice. Um, and I think what what additional I'd have to say about it is that that's OK. You know, it's actually a really good thing that we're wired in a way that we benefit individually from helping others. And oftentimes I think there can be a bit of a discourse around how selfless charity is better 
that, you know, doing things that really, you know, you give up a lot in order to benefit somebody else and that that's, that's the ultimate form of charity. I'd argue a different side that actually it's, it's a great thing that we're hardwired to, to benefit, to feel good about benefiting others. We're also, there's also other things like status that drive our charitable donations. We know it does. So, you know, mm. people being acknowledged, publicly acknowledged for their charitable acts, um, people doing it as a sense of, you know, making them feel good about themselves as a person. Um, we, in reality, we know that these things drive charitable giving, not, not exclusively, but they are important drivers of charitable giving. And, and oftentimes I get a sense that the discourse is kind of looked down on that kind of charity, looks down on looking, you know, to benefit from the status of giving or helping others or benefit from, um, you know, feeling good about yourself from doing it, that it, that it should just be the sacrificial thing and that that's the purest, best form of charity. Um, and I think we're really missing an opportunity there if we don't acknowledge that, you know, human nature is such that actually there are multiple motivations for engaging in charity and, and, and from a sort of a utilitarian perspective, what really matters is that people do it and do it in impactful ways. And so if status is part of the motivation, okay, but does that really matter to the person that benefits from it? Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't, but you're trying to achieve the most impactful charity overall, then we need to draw on these multiple motives um, yeah. and it's okay if it benefits us. That's a lesson that can be applied when it comes to maybe charities or some sort of policy in that you can unlock extra giving if you tap into that motive. It's like there's a social value to people giving charitable donations and there's an under provision. And this is a way to maybe bring that back up to what's maybe the optimal amount. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think charities are already kind of good at it to some large extent. You know, you have like big donations, people put their names on buildings or you have yeah. fundraisers where, you know, people's names are in the donation. So it's not that charities aren't doing it. It's just that I think that a sort of a general feeling towards charitable giving of that kind as being less than the sort of sacrificial could still hold people back from doing it. And, and, and yeah, we have suboptimal levels of charity as a result. So it's definitely not a, a perspective that everybody agrees on, but it, it's one that I argue in a, in a paper with my co-author, Paul Dolan. Um, and, and, and I think there's something to it. And I think the subjective well-being evidence definitely helps us support that because it it really shows, you know, actually it does benefit your well-being. So trying to pretend that there are these, maybe there are selfless acts out there, but for the most part, people do benefit when they do good. Um, and we have evidence for that. So so let's not shy away from that fact. Yeah. There's an episode of Friends about that, I think, as well, isn't there? I think there is, yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, I think I might have put it in the introduction to the paper and it got cut. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. There's a, well, they, they ran the experiment anyway, regardless of whatever peer-reviewed work has been done on it. But, uh, <laughs> Um, and uh, okay, well, maybe just to wrap up, then you've you've one interesting paper about calorie labeling, which I think has a really nice. Um, the methodology is really cool. I think you sort because you sort of view what people how people re react when they see calorie labels. Maybe you could just tell us a bit about that. It's it sounds like yeah. Sure. So it sounds it, it does sound like it's not exactly aligned with what I, all the other work that I've been doing, but but it is in the sense that um, one of the things that mental state account of well-being and any measures that fall under that can do is, is help us understand the impacts of policy interventions. So they could be behavioral interventions like nudges, informational informant, uh, interventions like calorie labeling, or more, you know, harder instruments like taxes, um, regulations, and so on. In order to do that, we need to be able to monitor people's responses to policies that they're exposed to. 
And as I've said before, subjective well-being is one way of doing that, but it's also useful to try to access or at least approximate how people are responding emotionally without having to ask them. Uh, and there's good reasons for that, you know, experimenter demand effects and um, social desirability bias. So, you know, if I expose you to a policy and then ask you to tell me how you feel, you might be second guessing what I want you to say. Um, and you might respond by giving me the answer I want or negatively by giving me the answer I don't want. So in a particular study, which was with Cass Sunstein and again, Paul Dillon, we looked at facial expression analysis. And so exposing people to calorie labeling information and trying to see how that impacted upon not only their choices, but also their emotions uh, as a way of getting at the short run emotional effects of that policy, which is a real policy in the States and elsewhere. Um, as well as kind of speaking to a small part of the whole welfare impacts of that policy. So obviously if it affects your choices, it'll affect your health. It may have long-term consequences in other areas, but one of the things that we haven't been able to really get a good handle on to date is how it affects people in the moment. And, and the reason we chose uh, calorie information, it was specifically in, in relation to cinema experiences. So in, in the US, there's been a regulation that there needs to be calorie information put on all of the cinema, cinema menus. And there was this question, okay, are you really taking away from people's cinema experience? You know, they're off to have an, an enjoying uh, and enjoy their evening. And then all of a sudden you're hitting them with this health messaging and, and, you know, what impact does that do to their mindset, to their leisure time? Even if it's only a short mono emotional cost, does it really, you know, take away from their overall experience? And if it does, we need, we at least need to know that to weigh up whether that's worth doing. Um, relative to the costs, the other sort of benefits you might get from it. Um, and what we find is it actually has pretty heterogeneous effects. So for the health conscious, it um, doesn't, for the health conscious, it brings negative emotions up. So it actually, for those people who really care about health, seeing health messaging in that context, well, we had a very stylized cinema experience because we were in a behavior research lab, but we did make a sort of cinema and um, the health conscious were negatively affected by their, their emotions, but their choices didn't change. Maybe because they're already health conscious and they're not going to choose this, what was a very salty, sweet popcorn offering. Mm. And then for the people who weren't health conscious, they actually weren't particularly bothered by the information in terms of their emotions, but it did shape what they chose. And what, it's not such a clear finding that's coming out in terms of the general population, but what it does suggest is that looking at well-being effects of policies and, and looking at them in this way, using facial expression analysis or using subjective well-being indicators can help us understand when policies are having differing effects on different populations. So again, not just talking about averages, but actually, you know, which are the groups we really care about addressing with a policy? And, and is it a problem that we're impacting the health conscious people's emotions, but not their choices? Yeah, that might not be a cost we're willing to take on. So yeah, it, it does link to the well-being research, but it, it takes a bit of uh, linking. Sure. And so how did you measure the reaction? And what sort of reactions did you look out for? How, how did that work? So it was facial expression analysis. So it, it's a, 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 through a software called Affectiva. So there's been quite a bit of work in developing different, um, different software programs to track emotions in the face. Um, and it's an ongoing sort of development. It's, it's not a perfect science by any means. There used to be a very, oh, um, the original fax system was actually a manual thing. So you'd have people who were trained in facial action coding systems. So being able to look at people's expressions and 
through a very sort of <laughs> precise, systematic way, determining what their uh, expressions were. That's all now being computerized. Um, and so we use the software called Affectiva, but there, there are different softwares that can do it. And it can break emotions down into really small, what are called action units. So things like a brow furrow or um, like a nose twitch or the curve of your mouth, for example. But it builds then a picture of the sort of basic emotions that people are experiencing at the time. Uh, and we didn't in the context of this study, but it can be cu coupled with things like eye tracking um, yeah. and you know other other biomarkers to get a full picture of the the physiological response to to stimuli. Okay. So it's an definitely an interesting area of of, of work, um, but again, one that's still developing. It's not a perfect not a perfect science. It still needs wow. some work. And did you so did somebody get one menu and it would have some option, and then you get another person with a different option, and then you just track. Track, yeah, track, so we, but, uh, yeah, responses. Exactly. So we invited uh, we invited um, a whole bunch of people down into the behavioral research lab at the LSE and we had them come to it was a cinema experience. And so they knew they were being monitored by webcams in their face. We, you know, very clear about that going on. Um, and then randomly they were either presented with the cinema experience that involved an offering of popcorn, including the nutritional information. Sorry, all of them were offered popcorn. Some of them were offered the nutritional information alongside it or not ask them then did they want it and then throughout both the both the moment of choice so when they're presented with that information but also the subsequent movie clips that we showed them we track their emotions and our findings are just in relation to that moment of choice so what's what seems to be really nice is that we're not ruining people's cinema experience altogether okay. there weren't differences across the experiences of the of the movie clips in those two groups just in that moment of choice there was a negative impact on emotion okay. for those health conscious people so, that's interesting that's very interesting actually and um did they know that the experiment was going to be on the, the uh on the menu or did they think it was or no it was no yeah. so i mean in um we're very clear that we don't include deception but we will describe a study in in a way that is kind of broad brush of what, about what it's about yeah so they weren't, we weren't directing their attention in relate because only half of them saw the calorie information anyway sure uh, having been a participant in a behavioral science research lab though i know you're always trying to figure out what is yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's yeah, exactly. really about so i'm sure some of them might have coughed on but we did do some some post testing where we we're asking them questions you know um what do you think the study is about that no. kind of thing standard practice but um yeah i'm always trying to figure it out so i'm sure some of them were too yeah no, it's, it's a really cool idea and it's a really interesting uh way to look at these things um okay well i think that's pretty much it well thanks a million kate thank you very much for having me on i was delighted to hear about the the series and uh really happy to be a part of it thanks, kate. Okay.